Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see you. I hope you had a great, great Christmas. Hasn't it been good just to be in the presence of God during this season of year? One of the favorite things that we like to do as, uh, as a family is to uh, go camping with our grandchildren. One of the parts of the day that I love the most, after all the hikes and all the fun and all the games through the day, is a time when we uh, build the fire and sit around that fire and roast the marshmallows and just kind of recap the day and enjoy the stillness uh, of the evening. I enjoy every step of the process. The first few steps as we get all the tiny pieces of kindling in the paper and just coax the fire until it's going strong and then start adding smaller sticks until it's finally ablaze and ready for the big logs that we put on the fire. But I think one of the times that I love the most is when it's time for the fire to die down and we sit by the embers, maybe roast the last marshmallow for the evening, but just to enjoy the ambiance of that setting. And I want to think today of the, of the Christmas season as a metaphor uh, for that fire. This year especially, I think it was hard to coax that Christmas spirit <laughs> with all that's going on with COVID and knowing what our holidays were going to look like as far as our distance. To get that Christmas spirit going, some of us even uh, got things going before Thanksgiving, just trying to, to envision what this Christmas season would look like. But soon it was a full roaring fire of Christmas joy, and we were together celebrating the Sundays of Advent and enjoying the presence of God in our lives. And now this time, as we look back a few days on our Christmas celebration and sit around the embers of that fire, I want us to take that time to just kind of reflect in that afterglow of Christmas, reflect on what God has taught us and how he has armed us to go into this new year uh, together. I think of the scripture uh, there in Luke where the shepherds come to Mary and it says she hears this good news, of course, piled upon the angel's word to Joseph, the angel's word to her that she would give birth to the Christ child. But it says she treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. So this morning I want us to spend some time just pondering. (laughs) Pondering that which God has taught us, what he has done within us, and what he would like to continue to do. Let's just start with the shepherds as part of the story. The shepherds and the wise men. I was thinking about uh, the things they had in common and the things in which they were completely different. The differences are, are pretty obvious. Their status, the lowest status in one culture, the highest status in another culture. Financially, different as night and day, the shepherds could only come and praise the Christ child with their lives, with their words, whereas the wise men bring these extravagant gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. In education, they were light years apart. And in proximity to the child, they were completely different. And yet, they were also very much alike in many ways. The, uh, both had an announcement of sorts, one from the star, one from the angels, recognizing that this Christ child has been born. They both felt compelled with this invitation to come and seek out the Christ child. Both groups found him. And another thing they had in common, they both worshipped him. And I thought of the verse in Ephesians, the second chapter in the 17th verse. It says, he came and preached peace 
to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And so I was pondering this. Whether we are the least or the greatest, we are welcomed. We can worship. We are invited to join in to this incarnation experience. There are many contrasts in the Christmas narrative. I think of Joseph and Mary and and all that they were going through. And one of the great contrasts is joy in the middle of tribulation. At the end of John 16, Jesus says this, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is forever saying things like that. Take heart. Be of good cheer. I think of the phrase he uses so often, talking about people's tribulation, their troubles, what's going on in their lives. In Matthew 9, he says to a man sick with palsy, be of good cheer. To a woman in Luke 8, with physical problems, be of good cheer. To his disciples in the boat in Matthew chapter 14, be of good cheer. And always at the basis of this be of good cheer is, I have overcome the world. And so in the midst of this global pandemic and all that this year has held for us, Jesus comes alongside and says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome all the obstacles that you face. I think of Paul, the apostle, and the way that Rome tried to beat him down and with all the punishments and imprisonments. And yet from that Roman prison, he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. James says, count it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that those trials build your faith. Listen to these words from Paul's pen to the church at Rome, the start of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. So we come to this Sunday between Christmas and New Year. We look back and we look forward. We, we recognize the contrast in our lives that he calls us to be of good cheer, even in the midst of all the things going on in our lives. <clears throat> Another of the contrasts I remember of the Christmas story is The way he consecrates the commonplace things. Jesus has come all the way from his throne in glory to a stable. All the way to the lowest of their culture. And he consecrates all those common things. The stable, the animals, the shepherd. He comes as a baby. He gives us sacraments. Very common. Bread in the cup. Something available to all to signify that which is most precious in this world. The life of Jesus Christ given for us. We see glory in the midst of his humiliation as another contrast. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. 
as he grows up and his teachings begin to sink into the disciples and then the active life that he pours out for us. Other contrasts rise to the surface. Sovereignty through suffering. He shows us what it means to bend low to us. Perfection through limitation. He shows us God's glory limited in human form and yet shown in its fullness. Victory through apparent defeat in death on the cross. Life through death. Phrase we've used all through the Christmas season. Emmanuel, God with us. Donald Gray Barnhouse talked about these contrasts and he put it this way. We see that Jesus endured a human birth to give us a new spiritual birth. He occupied a stable that we might occupy a mansion. He had an earthly mother so that we might have a heavenly father. He became subject that we might become free. He left his glory to give us glory. He was poor that we might be rich. He was welcomed by shepherds at his birth, whereas at our spiritual birth we are welcomed by angels. He was hunted by Herod that we might be delivered from the grasp of Satan. All the contrast of what God did just for us as he came to give us life. But this time as we have come through the Christmas season and, and celebrated Advent, I also want us to take some time to ponder what the future looks like. Hopefully this year we'll be able to put this pandemic behind us and be together in fellowship once again in all the ways we are used to, but also to retain the lessons we have learned that God is with us in times of trouble. For the church has always been at its best in times of crisis. We have always grown the most spiritually and in numbers during times of persecution and crisis. We have certainly been in a time of crisis. God wants us to move ahead and see his grace in our lives. Let me just read you the six verses that are Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in seat in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff which the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord watches over the righteous. I want us to think about these verses for just a moment as we think about moving now into this new year. The way of the righteous. It says blessed. Oh, the, the blessing of, the joy of this life of righteousness in Jesus Christ. He begins by saying some of the things that we, are, we do not do as righteous people. Now, certainly our, our lives are not based on negatives, but there are certain things that don't fit. They aren't in harmony with this walk with God. Things that must be left behind. The psalmist is very aware of how sin lures us, that Satan would like to just slowly move us into this life of sinfulness. But he says he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That is, he or she does not follow the advice of the wicked or their plans or their lifestyle. We have been called of God to a new lifestyle that is above that wickedness. 
that we do not stand in the way of sinners. That is, we don't conform to their example. We don't grow comfortable with that kind of lifestyle. Or we don't sit in the seat of mockers. That is, take part in the ungodly attitudes and actions of those who are strictly against God and God's people. There is in this scripture an amazing double progression of thoughts. In the nouns, the, uh, the wicked, the sinners, the mockers, it gets increasingly more wicked. The wicked are those who are out of touch with the standards of conduct. It's not a fixed condition. It's something they could rise above if they wish to. The word, therefore, sinners is the habitual pattern of sinfulness, that they have settled into this kind of lifestyle, that they are kind of professional sinners, if you will. This is the way they live their lives without any thought of any other lifestyle. And then there are the mockers. These are the arrogant, the quarrelsome, the foes of peace, the mockers of goodness, not only setting their ways against God, but making fun of God, making fun of Christians, mocking us in everything that we do. But in the psalm, as the nouns grow more and more wicked, the verbs become more and more familiar. You don't walk with the wicked. You don't stand with the sinners. You don't sit with the mockers. I remember the first church I pastored, fresh out of seminary, little country church in a town that had one stoplight. And I had always lived in big cities. Getting used to a small town was really fascinating to me. And the culture of that small town was amazing. You just walk from the church down to the, to the stoplight, which was a block away. And I might walk along with someone and we'd be at the corner and say, well, I'm going down to the post office. Oh, well, I'm going to the store. So we'd part company. As we got to know people better, we'd walk along with them and, and uh, maybe we had an errand or someplace to go, but we would just kind of stand there together for a while and visit. But then there were always these two guys and all day, every day, you know just where to find them. They were right there sitting together on the bench in front of a little barbershop, half a block down from the stoplight. And I was thinking about the progression of this, of walking along with the wicked in the psalm. You know, maybe hearing the impressions, maybe seeing a little bit of the conduct, and then going our way. But then maybe we would stand around with those sinners and learn more of that way and get more and more comfortable with that way until we are sitting with the mockers. It's the old frog in the kettle thing. You've heard the story. If you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it'll jump right out, a little worse for wear, but still alive. But if you take that same frog and put him in a pot and slowly turn up the heat, it will get adjusted to the warmth and adjusted to the warmth and adjusted to the warmth until he will not jump out and he will take his life. That's the way temptation and sin can be in our lives, the way Satan tries to lure us into sin. He doesn't throw the Christian into horrible, gross sin and say, oh yeah, this is what you should do. We'd be repelled by that. But if he can get us to have a little compromise here, a little compromise there, a little bit more here, pretty soon we're trapped in this. We have moved from walking in the counsel of the wicked to standing in the way of sinners to finally sitting in the seat of mockers. And God says, this is not a situation that would give us any peace at all. But then you say, well, how do we win sinners if we don't associate with them? We've got to be in the world, but not of the world, which is Jesus' prayer for us. 
Not that we be taken out of the world, but protected from the evil one. And so our discipleship is concerned without participation in the life of sin. We are forbidden to follow their advice, to emulate their habits, to immerse ourselves in their way of life. It is concern for the unbeliever without compromise with that unbelief. We always had this standard for our kids as they were growing up and talking about their friends, non-Christian friends and Christian friends. And we said, evaluate every relationship on the basis of, are you lifting them up or are they bringing you down? And so we can be a part of the world and give the love of Christ to that world without being tainted by that world. So those are the things we avoid. But what does the Christian do? The second verse says, he delights in the law of the Lord. That is, we think God's thoughts after him. It's why we come together around God's word, thinking God's thoughts, seeing the beauty, seeing the love, and recognizing what he has in store for us. He says he meditates on the law of God day and night. What it is to meditate on God's law. The law was given as an act of grace after the Exodus, not to gain God's favor, but as response to what God had already done. He's given us guidelines of how to live. It's not what not to do, but what God has done. And we meditate on that day and night. It's a matter of attitude. The New Testament version of that would be Paul saying uh, to the Thessalonian church, pray without ceasing. Always to be aware that we're in the presence of God. So it's one thing to delight. It's quite another thing to depend on man-made standards. We don't want to fall into legalism. We want to delight in this relationship of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Discipleship is delighting in what God has done. So these are the two ways, sin and delight. What's the difference? Then he talks about these in the final three verses, uh, four verses of the psalm. The, the person who loves God is stable. It says, like a tree planted by streams of water. The picture is someone who is godly and fruitful. There's value in the tree and its fruits. There's value in our lives as God has established us. It says, the ungodly are like the worthless chaff. Chaff, not only worthless, but it's a nuisance. The harvester had to get rid of it. You know, now we have machines that do that, but in that day, they would get the grain... And all the chaff is mixed in with it. They would have to wait to go up to the threshing floor when the wind was blowing so they could throw up the grain, let the chaff be blown away by the wind and the good grain falls back to them. It has to be dealt with and taken away. Wind blown and forgotten. Without root or without fruit. We cannot stand in the day of judgment, he says. So it's more than just two, two ways to live. It's the difference between life and death. Jesus uses similar comparisons in his words. The broad and narrow way. The corrupt and good tree. The house that's built on the rock as opposed to the house that's built on the sand. Here the psalmist says, we either walk in sin or we delight in the Lord. One way leads to destruction and one way leads to life. And so the sixth verse says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God knows the righteous. Aren't you glad that God knows you thoroughly? And when we stumble, we come right back to him and say, God, forgive me, help me to follow you better in these days to come. And so in these days when we tend to make resolutions for the coming year, let's resolve to live as the righteous and to rejoice in that righteous life. 
Not to fall into a legalist, legalism that just kind of is cumbersome to us, but to delight in the Lord daily, to be in his presence. The righteous persists because his mind and the will of God are at one. Where it says the wicked are not known to God and they will perish. The choice is ours. Everyone. Everyone walks in one of these two ways. We choose the path. And the question is, if we stay on the path we are on, where will we end up? And some people are, are just kind of wishy-washy. And they're, well, I'm not really committed to God. Well, if I stay on the road I'm on, where will I end up? What's going to happen if I do not give myself completely to him? So as we ponder on this Sunday between Christmas and New Year, as we, as we ponder his love and what that love means, let's not only focus on what we have learned, but what he is calling us toward what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live in this coming year, and how we might best represent him, to allow him to lead us and to guide us. I hope that this service online finds you and your family in a wonderful place. Those of you who meet with us online will gather together next week. We'll share in communion together as we start the new year. Let's glory in what God has done for us and what he can do within us as we strive to be the righteous who live by faith in these days to come. God bless you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace, a grace which helps us to look back and to look forward, to reflect on a wonderful Christmas season, and to look to what you have for us in the days to come. May that rejoicing be demonstrated in our daily walk. We want to be people of the way. We want to live by your Spirit. And as we live by your Spirit, live a light that shines to others. Your word says, let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. May our lives bring you glory in these days ahead. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. Thank you.